we have like hundreds of years of sobriety. You know, how is this possible? Um, I eventually did come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I wanted what everybody in my meetings had, you know. So I made the decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, today I am sitting here with Robert, who I met at the Rule 62 group. I don't know, it's been a couple of years now, right? I mean, through COVID and everything. And well, I've been right? sober for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I had a period of time, probably two to three months, that I was sober before I went to meetings. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll introduce myself. Um, Go for it. My name's Robert, and I'm an alcoholic. So when's your sobriety date, and where's your home group? So my sobriety date is July 30th, 2019. So I just hit two years um, a couple of weeks ago. And the Rule 62 in uh, Northern Colorado is my home group. Nice. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Two years. Um, so two years and you did it through COVID even. <laughs> Big congrats on that. Thanks. Yeah, COVID was, that was an added dimension of difficulty and help. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> well, so when I first got sober, I guess we'll kind of just jump in. And sure. Go ahead, that, man. If, jump on in. <laughs> if that works. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <clears throat> I went to an IOP, uh, individual outpatient um, rehab center, right? So I did uh, group therapy multiple nights a week um, while still being able to come home and go to work and that kind of stuff. Um, And I did that for a whole year, actually just over a year. But I didn't start going to AA meetings until, like I said, two or three months into my sobriety. Because I didn't believe that I was one of you, (laughs) as so many of us feel initially. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, yeah, how about let's go all the way back and I'll uh, I'll just tell you, I guess, uh, yeah, what I was like, what happened and what I'm like now. Perfect. So I'm 36 today. And um, starting all the way back, my story's got some trauma in it, as a lot of ours do. Um, My parents, they got divorced when I was a super tiny kid. I was four. Um, And my mom, she was super straight edge. She, I don't think she's ever even smoked a cigarette. Hmm. Um, But my dad, uh, Robert Sr., was an abusive alcoholic. Uh, he left us two months after my little sister Audrey was born, and uh, my mom eventually remarried what I would describe as the world's biggest asshole. How do you feel about profanity? Because I do. You can let it out. It's all right. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. She married a guy I considered to be a pretty big jerk, and uh, 
not long after they got married, uh, my big sister Alicia was hit by a car while riding her bike. Uh, she spent a week in a coma and died a month before her 10th birthday. And she was my best friend. I was, was glued to her uh, when, we were, when we were young. Um, so things were pretty shitty for a while. Um, my big brother, Jason, he ran away to Michigan to live with his dad when he was 14 and I was 8. Um, I started drinking when I was 13. And what's funny is that's what I've written. My uh, information, my buddy tells me that it was actually either his 14th or even 15th birthday. So I don't really remember. But I was definitely before driving age when I started drinking. Hmm. Um, His mom had given him a bottle of vodka for his birthday. Nice. Yeah. Um, And there was a lot of... There was a lot of drinking in his family, as with most of our families. So it wasn't even a big deal to him. He had already been exposed to alcohol. Yeah. And uh, I never had. So I was like, dude, can I? He's like, sure, go right ahead. So I drank the whole bottle uh, that night, and I pissed him off royally. So I'm cranking the music. He's trying to sleep, and I'm dancing around like an idiot. I'm drunk for the first time. I was thrilled. Um, and he was just annoyed, obviously. Um, but, um, but yeah, so that was my first introduction to alcohol and, um, yeah, so there's going to be little asides like that kind of throughout cause mm-hmm. I have got this like structure of the story. But, uh, when I was 17, uh, my brother Jason, uh, he was killed in a car accident. Um, and that's when I started to drink like between classes in high school, um, when it went from just with friends as a social thing to on my own. Um, and I got kicked out of the house for drinking when I was 18. Um, that was, that was the day I kind of knew was coming. Um, cause I'd been just stashing, empty bottles and cans and stuff in my bedroom. And I don't know why I thought I'd get away with keeping them there. But, um, yeah, I came home one day from school and there they all were just like lined up by the front door. Nice. There was a shocking amount. I didn't realize I'd squirreled away so much. Uh, But anyways, yeah, I got kicked out uh, when I was 18 and, uh, went to live with a friend of mine Went to community college for a couple years. Um, I noticed reading uh, philosophy and drinking vodka tied together quite nicely. Uh, And that's where I became agnostic um, after high school years. I was raised a Christian, but at that point I had pretty much rejected all authority. Got into punk rock, started going to shows. Um, I dropped out of college and went to a trade school because I really didn't know what I wanted to be. So I went to an automotive tech school up in uh, Laramie and uh, that's where I learned how to weld. I was super taken with that. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So um, got into welding and um, pretty much when I started my career is when I started drinking every day. Um, And when that came around so did the weird habits 
I started like rotating liquor stores. Um, that's something that um, a lot of us are familiar with. Um, if I only buy a handle, you know, every five days from this guy and then rotate, I have, you know, same thing with three, uh, two or two other liquor stores. I don't know what we think we're, we're accomplishing. Um, I don't know what percentage of a liquor store's patronage is alcoholics, but I'm guessing it's it gotta be 5%. They're from, I don't know, probably a little At more. Least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I mean, they're, we're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but either way, yeah, you know, you think you're getting away with something. You think you're playing these tricks and, um, and you're really not. Uh, but, uh, I, uh, I wrote this little star here in my, my story that I've gotten like really roughly outlined about, um, I do competitive shooting It's one of my hobbies and, uh, I do like pistol shooting competitions and anytime you buy a firearm, you got to do background check, right? And one of the questions on the background check is, are you a habitual drunkard? Cool. And, you know, I would obviously check no on that. Um, but as the years progressed, because, you know, I've gotten more than one firearm, I, I really kind of, they would hang me up when I'd go and do those background checks, um, when I'd have to check that box. But, uh, so all this kind of ties together, um... Along with rotating the liquor stores, another thing I did was I would, um, on payday, go to the ATM and get cash. And I would buy booze with cash instead of my card because I didn't want there to be a paper trail, right? Because uh, in Colorado, they've passed red flag laws, right? And I figured I needed some sort of legal defense, like, I'm not an alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> even though just check my trash can, <laughs> um, you know, the evidence is there, but, um, yeah, just all the little, little lies we tell ourselves and like mm-hmm. the, a lot the, of work. The, oh God. It's so much work. Yeah. Um, yeah, indeed it is. But, uh, but yeah, so I started drinking by myself and that was, that was a real turning point. I didn't need anybody else, just me and my Russian buddy vodka. Um, I I blew a .35 at a party one time. Uh, a friend of mine had one of those breathalyzer deals, um, the handheld ones. He got this killer job at our age. He was making boatloads of cash, so he spent like $500 on this thing. This is like a really nice unit. And everybody was convinced that it was broken because of what I blew. And I tried to explain to them that I was an alcoholic, but like we were still kids at that point, you know, like they didn't get it and I didn't get what I really meant by that Mm -hmm. at that point. Um, My buddy Cody and I used to joke about how we were like way past acceptance, Um, (laughs) but it was still a joke. Because things hadn't become unmanageable yet. Hmm. Um, that would take another decade. Um, so over the years, 
I tried to cut back a million different ways and you know they they worked for a little while right like I could always manage to cut back a bit for a period of time but until inevitably something would happen um you know, I had a girlfriend that cheated on me. We broke up. I started drinking after that. But then I cut back and uh, got in a huge blow of fight with this other girl. She punched me in the face, actually, and threatened to uh, fuck all my friends. That was an exciting event. Uh, but, you know, of course, after after that relationship ended, I went back to full, full-scale drinking. Um and again you know you try all these ways to cut back and some of them worked some of them didn't but inevitably they would all fail for any reason you know my boss was being a jerk i had a bad day anything um would just bring me right back up to that point where i knew i needed to cut back but i couldn't i knew i needed to that was the thing right it's always cut back Mm -hmm. get it under control because I never wanted to live the rest of my life without alcohol. That was fact, right? Um, so in June of 2019, um, my dad's sister called. Um, my sister and I went to the hospital in Oklahoma to see our dad for the first time in 30-some years. Um, we were going to be visiting for three days. So I brought three flasks, uh, when they found my dad unconscious in his house, they, uh, said he hadn't eaten in 10 days, I guess, based on this blood work or something they could tell. And all he had was bourbon. Um, my dad was in construction his whole life. He was six, two, he was a big, strong guy. Uh, but when I saw him on the hospital bed uh, on a respirator, emaciated, he was under 100 pounds. And he looked like he had walked out of Auschwitz. And it was, it was pretty shocking to see this person um, in that state. Uh, when I saw him laying there, I saw myself. I saw my future. And my sister and I drove home on the 4th of July and my dad died on July 11th. Um, and I, I fucking spiraled. And it was interesting because two things happened at the same time. I got super serious about getting sober. I knew that I had to. And at the same time, my consumption tripled. Um, so I made, I made this grand plan to dilute my vodka I ordered a bunch of laboratory flasks, right? Like volumetric flasks and that had like these stands with these pet cocks and I was going to dilute my vodka 10%, right? Like, <laughs> and I, I had this whole structure of how I was going to dilute it and cut back and number of drinks and... It's impressive. And all of this business, it was, you know, it was another doomed to fail attempt a lot of work a lot of work absolutely um 
But yeah, while at the same time I got super serious about getting sober, um, I stopped going to work. Um, I stole drugs from my friends. Um, I was, I was really hitting my, my personal rock bottom, um, until I finally reached out. I didn't realize that's what I was doing either. I was super drunk. Um, I was high on, uh, stolen cocaine and I called my best friend's wife who works at a treatment center at 5 a.m. on a Monday morning just to chat, right? Uh, I was out of my mind. But uh, I did end up going to detox for five days and I joined a program. I was doing group therapy at my IOP and I started going to AA. Uh, I was not sold on AA for a while. I had only ever gone to my home group. Um, I live in a small town and I didn't really identify with too many people in my group. Um, you know, it's so many people there, they're the same group and so many of them have like just decades of sobriety under their belts. You know, I felt... <laughs> oh, it's the doggy wants to go outside. Yeah. I felt... Uh... <clears throat> Problem solved. Yeah, I, di I didn't really identify with a lot of the people in my home group. So someone suggested that I try um, a different meeting. Um, they suggested this 11-step meeting in Boulder. And that's where I actually heard somebody like actively talking shit about God. And I thought to myself, that's him. That is my fucking sponsor. <laughs> um, so I asked him and he wanted to stay sober. So he said yes. And I started working the steps. Um, up until that point, like I knew I was an alcoholic, but I didn't feel it. I thought if I did enough work... And I had enough time between, you know, my last drink that I could get to a point where I could drink again in a healthy way. And the first thing my sponsor and I did, he had me tell him about myself, about my experience. And I told him how I stole from my friends while they were sleeping in my house. How I knocked my best friend over my dining room table this table, you know, uh, that we're speaking at right now, and right in front of his wife because I was angry. Um, and eventually I did begin to identify with the people in my home group. And I began to identify with everybody in recovery. Because, like, at first, I felt like I was different. I felt like my story was different. And as we go along... start to realize that we all have the exact same stories. You know, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. It's simple as that. And after the hundreds of ways I tried to cut, cut back or quit, um, I knew this was one thing I couldn't control. None of us could. Because if we could, we wouldn't be in 
these rooms. We wouldn't be in meetings, you know. Um, but we are here, and like collectively, we have like hundreds of years of sobriety. You know, how is this possible? Um, I eventually did come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I wanted what everybody in my meetings had, you know. So I made the decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. I do admit I have a less common perception of a higher power than a lot of people in my area. But, you know, if it works, it works. And um, and I just did what my sponsor told me to do. Um, I took inventory of my life. I took responsibility for the resentments that I was carrying. Um, resentments that weren't harming anybody else. They were, but they were harming me. I own the fact that like my hate for my stepdad was my problem. Like he didn't give a shit that I was cursing his name, drinking alone at my house, you know, but it was ruining my fucking life. So I told somebody, I became ready to move forward in my life, um, and start a new chapter. I became willing to see that certain parts of myself were actually quite objectionable. And this whole idea that I knew how things should go, if only they did it my way, this idea that, you know, running the show, um, if it only they did it my way, things would be better. Things would run smoother. That crap that I knew best was only getting in the way of me staying sober of me potentially helping somebody else stay sober. So again, I just did what they told me to do. I humbly asked God to remove my shortcomings. I really don't want to be an asshole, right? It's not helpful to anybody. And I mean, speaking of assholes, something really strange happened during my ninth step. I started to see things from my stepdad's point of view. I had always considered myself a victim, right? My sister died. My brother died. My mom married a fucking asshole. But what about him, right? He marries this attractive blonde woman with dope-ass kids, kids that he probably grew to love, and then one of them dies. Not only did he also experience the loss of my sister, but this wonderful woman he married was fucking shattered. Um, I would turn into an asshole too. On page 67 in the big book, it says, when a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. You know, there's a lot of people walking around with the luxury of resentments, with the luxury of being angry. And... I no longer have that luxury. So I work the steps. And that is, that's my story. Hmm. How are things today in your head versus how they were, say, three years ago? <laughs> Night and day different. I, um, I think about my relationship to other people like in the world rather than 
what they can do for me or like how they're affecting me. It's much less self-centered and it's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier today. I don't have to... One one massive change in my thinking is um, I don't have these fake arguments anymore in my head. I mean, I still do sometimes, but like 10% of the time. You should... You should take one of these mics and put it in my bathroom when I'm showering, dude. Like three years ago versus today. The amount of fake arguments I've had with coworkers and stuff, like, I don't really do that much anymore. And I think a lot of that comes from the 11th step work that I've been doing. I meditate kind of regularly. And um, that was a habit I got into right from the beginning with my IOP. We did, um, the, in the group therapy, we would do, um, meditation and, and it was cool because we all did it a different way. Um, because there was a different person each day of the week running the group. And so they had a different method for running the meditations. And so you got a good feel for the different ways to do it. Cause mm-hmm. obviously some people are much, much more spiritual and, um, everybody's got a a way that jives with their their natural rhythm. So I'm glad I found a, a meditation method that works for me. And it helps just turn the volume down on all, a lot of the nonsense that we tell ourselves. How did um, the relationship with your family change and making amends... You know, was must have been a process. How do you feel about all that today? Yeah, it was a big process. I feel great about it. Um, I can't talk about it without mentioning COVID. Um, because that is a part of my recovery story. I didn't really discuss it much, um, you know, in kind of the meat and potatoes of the story. But I don't identify with my family um, like philosophically, Mm -hmm. religiously, or politically. And so it was, it was a job. It was work. Um, I'm super grateful at how loving my family is because when I you know, kind of officially was doing the making amends with them. Uh, they, you know, they're proud of me. They love me. And, and they were absolutely willing to work with me to help me or allow me to make things right with them. Right. Um, that being said, it is an ongoing relationship, you know, and, and luckily you know, I did my ninth step for the first time before COVID. And since then, there's been a lot of stuff that has come up. And we have had to, you know, in this, this ever-moving organic way, continue to, to work with each other. Um, you know, one of the things that I was taught... <laughs> about the uh, 
ninth step is, you know, we're not there begging for forgiveness. We're not groveling. We're there to let them know that we honestly recognize like what we've done, that we have harmed and we are willing to do what's necessary to fix that if it's possible, if they're willing to accept that, right? Um, so, you know, one thing that was hard in one of my amends making was having to kind of hold my ground and not be that groveling person that I think they wanted to see. Um, and this isn't someone in my family, but this is a friend who, yeah, it just felt like that was the direction they wanted it to go. And it's like, no, this is, that's not how this works. That's not what I'm here to do. So, um, that's why, you know, the ninth step is the ninth step and not the third step, you know, because mm-hmm. you have to get your base underneath you as you go along, you know, you, you can't stand your ground, so to speak. You can't, I guess, approach someone in as much of a confident way, you know, in your, like, third day of sobriety Hmm. versus your third month. Um, And I know everybody does their their step work at a different pace. I uh, heard early on somebody say, may you have a long and slow recovery, and that's what I've been doing. I didn't finish my... Um, step work the first go round until over a year into my sobriety you know I took my time um, but I think that I've worked it in such a way that I've provided a pretty solid foundation for myself um so you got stayed sober through COVID you mm-hmm. got sober through COVID yeah was it hard did you do Zoom meetings and what, what did that look like? Definitely. Yeah, Zoom all the way. Because um, I uh, I took COVID pretty serious. I, I wore my mask when I uh, was supposed to and I avoided gatherings and stuff. So I stopped going to in-person meetings. Um, and <clears throat> uh, so, yeah, I went to Zoom. Uh, I went to the AA Intergroup uh, website and... Super dope. They literally update the list every hour. And so what's at the top of the list is the next meeting that's going to start. And there's hundreds of them. And so I surfed around for a little while. Um, I thought it was cool to do meetings in other countries. Got into that. <laughs> and then um, I found, found uh, I guess what I would describe as like my, my online home group, <laughs> the Ohana group uh, in Hawaii. Great, great group of people, and they have two meetings a day. Um, here locally, it's noon and midnight, which works with my schedule perfectly because one of the things COVID served me was uh, I had to go to a night shift for social distancing. They split our maintenance department up, and so I, I work until 11 p.m. now every night. But having a meeting an hour after I get off work is kind of perfect timing. So, yeah, I definitely went to online meetings. And now I'm glad um, the vaccine and everything else and get into uh, back to in-person meetings and feel comfortable doing that. 
All right. So if you could write, if you had to write your story in a sentence or two, how would it read? In a sentence or two? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a that's a tough one to answer, I guess. It was just, maybe shut up, accept it, listen. Because the volume inside my head was it was at eleven, man. It was cranked up. I I could not hear what I was doing to other people, what I was mm-hmm. doing to myself. I had no idea. Hmm. And I just needed to stop talking. That sounds like a piece of advice you would give in yourself early in, yeah. in your recovery. Big right? time. Yeah. Good. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that I I think I heard that message. I don't know from mm-hmm. where, but um I definitely got the message like, hey man, you cannot handle this on your own. There is a way out. And yeah, so go to meetings, listen, do what they tell you to do if you want what they have. All right. Any last words on this episode? Oh gosh, I'm sure as soon as you stopped recording, there's like, going to be I I nine that. things that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, there is one thing that I do. Uh, we what I mentioned before we started recording some of the things we don't really talk about in meetings necessarily, yeah. and I think mm-hmm. one of them is like the nuts and bolts of like in our brains how addiction works. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we drink, we flood our brain with dopamine, right? And when you do that regularly, at first, it's awesome. Because every receptor in your brain that can grab onto that dopamine gets it and you feel great. Um, but as we all know, you we call it like gaining a tolerance for alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. And the, how that is working is that we are so regularly flooding our system artificially with dopamine that our receptors naturally are going to start to recede. We're going to get fewer and fewer receptors for dopamine because we have this onslaught that's regularly showing up because we're drinking so much, so regularly, right? So as those receptors slowly diminish in quantity, we need more alcohol, we need more dopamine to get the feel good, right? But then we quit. And now... Apart from having a reduced number of dopamine receptors, we also stop producing dopamine on our own. So now there is this epic deficit in our brain on both sides where our brains have stopped producing regular amounts of dopamine. And then we have fewer receptors for that dopamine. So we're super freaking depressed. And there is this very like measurable and real thing that is affecting us in our brain that is causing depression right Mm -hmm. like we there is a pink cloud that kind of happens when you first get sober right Mm -hmm. where it's like you're in this whole new world you know like ariel coming up you know with her two feet walking around um but at the same time like we are battling with this this epic dopamine deficit that in my case took 15 years to build and so it takes months and months for those receptors to start coming back 
because there's such a deficit. And then obviously, like in my case, I went a lot. I would go hours or sometimes weekends without eating because I didn't want to ruin my buzz. Right. And so I wasn't exercising. I wasn't eating properly. And so when you're getting healthy along with getting sober, you have to relearn all these habits of like, oh, people eat three meals every day and Mm -hmm. you don't just like stop eating at lunchtime on Friday and then binge food Sunday night so you can maybe make it to work on Monday. (laughs) Um, You know, so yeah, our body needs to, it takes a long time to adjust to like start creating somewhat normal amounts of dopamine and also rebuild those receptors to to receive that amount of dopamine, which is uh, something that I really don't hear ever in a meeting, people talking about how it works in the brain, but that is a big part is that, yeah, you will be depressed and it will feel horrible sometimes. And there was a very real reason for that and it will pass. And that's the biggest thing is that it will pass in time. So, yeah, I definitely want people to know and understand how that works Robert thank you very much really appreciate you sharing your story with us thank you Alfredo and uh, yeah keep it up man you're killing it (laughs) I will I will thank you thanks again Robert for sharing your story on the Recovery Edge cast thank you listeners for checking us out another week Remember, you can find us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, wherever you like to check out your podcasts. Share the podcast with whomever you'd like, and uh, it'd be greatly appreciated. Leave us a review on the iTunes store or Apple Music, whatever that is these days. And I really appreciate you guys listening, and we'll see you next time.